this morning is May 22nd, Sunday morning. Our topic this morning is at risk. Risk is something we spend most of our lives trying to avoid, right? Anybody played the board game Risk? No? I know a few of you in here have because you taught me. The board game Risk is basically about strategy. You have little kingdoms of the world that are divided up between the players, and you put certain numbers of your army at risk so that you stand the chance of gaining territory. There's always the possibility of loss, though, especially if you play with me. No, I'm kidding. I think David thoroughly beat us all. When we, yeah, yeah, see, they all laugh at that. <laughs> That's, yeah, I, I do tend to win at Monopoly. It's that Laban spirit in me. Uh, no, not Laban. The idea, though, for risk is it wouldn't be much of a game if you weren't willing to ever move your pieces out of your one territory that you occupy. Much of faith comes from putting yourself at risk. In fact, you find out true faith always borders on irresponsibility. When God tells you to do something, it's not usually the status quo. It's not usually what everybody around you is doing. In fact, you almost always have to be willing to suffer some loss. Think about the day that you were born again, provided that's happened. If it hasn't, then praise God, it will. The day that you were born again, or the day that as an adult you became seriously conscious of God and wanted to follow Him with your whole heart, was not one of the first thoughts in your life, what will my friends think? See, that's risk. If I align myself with Jesus, what will other people think? Now, we've been trained to say we don't care what anybody thinks. But we don't care what anybody thinks as long as they don't think badly of us. <laughs> you know, you've got to love those teenage years that people have, right? Well, I was there. Somewhere around 7th, 8th grade, people begin to get socially conscious of what's going on around them. They say, Mom, Dad, you know, everybody else is wearing Jabot jeans. I remember my mom and I trying to figure out how to roll my jeans in such a way that everybody else was doing. Y'all remember this? Yeah. Or the day that I had to have two different color all-star high tops, you know. Or one color shoes but with different color shoes, shoelaces. People have done all kinds of things to try to alleviate this pressure from people, right? I mean, we have private schools. What happens in a private school? We have a uniform. That'll, that'll fix the problem, right? No more pressure to conform. The cry of teenagers is, I want to be unique. But they all want to be unique as long as they're just like everyone else. So, in the private school uniform situation, you know what happens? You start arguing about the emblem on your belts. You start arguing about the kind of shoes because those aren't scripted. Jackets. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're, you're cool and you're not because of a little emblem on a belt. There's this pressure on us always to conform. And it doesn't just exist in human behavior. Anybody's ever been around a farm or watched one of those National Geographic shows? What happens to the one little chicken that's different than all the other chickens? Yeah, that's how we get the term pecking order. Anything that is different must be wrong. That's, how, that's our, our attitude sometimes. Well, part of Christianity is realizing that we are wrong and that we need to be remade into God's image. Be specifically remade into Jesus' image. Let me read you something that will kind of set the tone. I don't do that very often, but this, this I'm hoping is kind of the point of what I want to get to today. Faith often borders on irresponsibility. It is often hard for us to adopt an attitude that is pleasing to God because of the what-if factor. You feel this urging in your spirit 
to give away your last hundred dollars. But what if I don't have groceries then? You feel an urging to pray for somebody who's sick, but what if they don't get out of the wheelchair? You feel an urging to start a church, but what if nobody comes? Feel an urging to do something, but what if? Real faith holds nothing back because of the possibility of failure. Real faith holds nothing back because of the possibility of failure. In fact, throwing caution to the wind, following your Lord regardless of the consequence, is a fundamental building block of your faith. Faith makes no contingency plans and serves God with a reckless abandonment of self, a willingness to place everything at risk. Yeah, there are times we see this in our life, even outside of Christianity, and you admire it. You know, I played football with this guy, and we don't know who he is, but he's over there, that was the first one down the field every kickoff. And whoever caught that poor bowl, I mean, whoever took possession of what he thought was his, paid a, a serious price for that. And it was amazing because these little two thick legs would carry this body all the way down the field, and then at some point it would get parallel to the ground and make helmet-to-helmet contact at the head level, you know? It, it, was, it was truly something special to watch. When we see that kind of thing, what do you think? Man, that guy's throwing his whole self into the game. That's awesome. You love that. You like that kind of intensity where they're not really concerned with what happens to them. There's an object in mind. God admires the same thing. In fact, we'll find out that anybody that ever accomplished anything for God did it, for lack of a better term, throwing caution to the wind, caring less about the consequences. How many times have we let the what-if factor weigh us down? The what-if keep you from acting. If, I, if I'm going to make a mistake in Christianity, friends, I want it to be one of action, not inaction. We sit paralyzed, unable to hear from God, thinking we'll just pray some more about it when you know what you should do. You're just scared. I would rather make a mistake full speed than a mistake in hesitation. Anybody's ever learned to drive figures that one out real quick, you know? Okay, turn with me to Matthew 13, verse 44. I want you to understand the attitude that you were saved under. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. It doesn't say he sold some of the things that he had. It doesn't say that he sold a few of the least important things. Or he sold 90% and saved 10. It said he sold all he had to go by the field. Jesus repeats himself in another parable. He says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. A man I admire greatly is Keith Green. And in one of his songs, as he was singing, his friends begged him to change the words. The production company that he formed said, you can't do this. Take these words out. Change them. Do something different. Because his message to the church was, if you'll only come to me on Sundays and Wednesdays, don't bother coming to me at all. Because Keith understood something. We serve an all-or-nothing God. He's infinitely merciful infinitely full of grace for somebody whose attitude is to follow Him. But you find out those that are half-hearted, 
that have not made a commitment either for or against, but would like to ride the fence somewhere in the middle, He has no patience for. Zero. God is a jealous God. The Scripture says that He burns intensely with jealousy for you. He wants your life. Now, you typically think of jealousy as a bad thing, right? We, we typically think of if a man's jealous over a woman or a woman's jealous over a man, that's a bad thing. That's because of our sinful nature. When the Bible says God is jealous, it means He wants to share you with none. He wants to be the everything in your life. Do you all remember some of you that were here on Wednesdays that the goal and plan of God was to be all in all? It starts with Him being all in all in your life. And then we move from there. So from these parables, you get the idea that when you decided to follow Jesus, you set aside everything that you had. You set aside all that would hinder you and you were going to follow Him regardless of the cost or consequence. Turn with me to Mark. In Mark 2... We see a story that I think illustrates this well. Now, when I say we see a story, don't think of this as a storybook. This is not a fictitious event that somebody made up simply for your benefit. These events were recorded by eyewitness accounts in most cases and during a time period where they could be verified. They were written and distributed among people that had first-hand knowledge that it occurred. So it's trustworthy. Listen to how this happens. In Mark 2, verses uh, 1, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that He had come. So many gathered so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And He preached the Word to them. Some men came bringing, bringing to Him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since He could not get in to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat that the paralyzed man was lying on. Friends, I would say that that's determination. Wouldn't you? We work at everything being convenient in our lives. We look at where we place our businesses and some churches that are run like businesses based on the demographics of the area. You want it to be convenient for people. Easy access. We really are concerned with things like air conditioning, things like comfortable seating, because we want people to be able to sit and listen to the Word unhindered. All good motives, right? You want easy access. You you want people to be in comfort. But there's got to be something burning within the heart of Christianity that says, even if it's uncomfortable, I am willing, Lord. Even if it costs me my life, Lord, I'm willing. Now, how many woke up this morning with that attitude, rolled out of bed? You know, something that is precious always costs you something. You've heard your whole life, salvation is free. And it is, except that it costs you your whole life. Because you give up your will and you take on His will at that point. It's no longer optional that you're obedient. You have pledged yourself. You've sold everything you've had to obtain what He has for you. The problem with Christians is we often sell everything to buy the pearl. And then once we have it, we spend the rest of our life trying to get back everything that we lost. It cannot be this way. These men set out with a goal in mind. They carried a friend. Four people carried this heavy burden with them. And they said, come hell or high water, I am getting to Jesus. And they met obstacles along the way. 
The first obstacle was there were so many people around, there was such a crowd that they couldn't get to Him. How many would have turned and just went home and said, we'll have to find Him another day? Maybe we can catch Jesus on the telecast. But they didn't. They said, well, we need to get Him to Jesus. How can we do it? We can't get in the door. So they found a way for men to carry a paralytic up onto a roof. Let me ask you something. If you looked out here today and saw four men hoisting a guy in a wheelchair up onto my roof, would you think that was foolish? Faith always borders on foolish. But you pledged your life that you would become a fool in the eyes of men to be considered wise before God. The Scripture teaches us that. It's only foolish if God didn't tell you to do it. Do you think they might have sat there and said, what if we drop him? What if Jesus is angered by this because it's interrupting His message? What if He doesn't heal Him? How many what-ifs do you think might have come to their mind? Could there have been a fear there? Could there have been a fear that began to grow in them? I'm sure there was. These were human beings. This is not a story like Little Red Riding Hood. It's not made up of fictitious characters. They were men like Trevor and Steve and Brad and David. They were men who were carrying another man and they were risking something being there. That's arguable who had the most to risk. The paralytic wanted to be healed. He was paralyzed. I mean, the worst that could happen to him was it didn't happen. But these guys were staking their reputation on something. For love for a friend and belief that Jesus was who He said He was. Watch something. Verse 5. Actually, let's start back in verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get to Jesus, or get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat that the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus heard about their faith, when Jesus sensed that they believed, when Jesus read their doctrinal statement, when Jesus saw their faith. You've been taught that faith is something that is in your heart. People, George Michael sang about faith. But it's different than a biblical faith. A biblical faith is a belief that you possess. It's something that you are so sure of that it produces an action on the outside. Faith is not faith if it is not working outwardly. It's true that you possess it in your heart. But if it's there, it will begin to work on the outside of you. You can say all day long that you have faith that you can walk across a tightrope. You believe it can be done. You believe you can do it. It really means nothing to God. It means nothing to the Jewish mindset that this book was written from until they see you do it. I've told you many times that a friend of mine that works for Bridges for Peace, when he got to Israel, uh, was met by a Jewish woman and says, you know, what is your organization all about? And he began to tell her, what he believes. I believe the Jews are the God, God's chosen people. I believe that Israel is God's unique possession. I believe, I believe, I believe. She said, ah, yes, this is all very good. But what do you do? We need to begin to adopt an attitude that says, if I believe it, I will do it. You remember the Nike slogan said, just do it? Christians would do well. <laughs> Nike was a foreign god at that. But in any case, Christians would do well if we looked at the Word and had an attitude that says, quit reasoning it out. Quit deciding that the consequences are too high. Quit letting fear stop you and just do 
what God says to do. We make it so complicated sometimes. Well, that little voice comes to you and says, did God really say? It's the same voice that's been lying since the beginning. Did God really say? Well, if it is good and it was quickened to your spirit or if the idea came to you and it was not a natural idea, pretty safe bet you could do it. And you know what? If you don't succeed, at least you made a mistake trying rather than hiding in cowardice and fear. I don't know if we'll study it today, but sometimes take a close look at the difference between a sheep and a goat in the Bible. Sheep all did something. They didn't always succeed, but they did something. Goats? Goats were not goats because they did things that were horrible. They were not goats because they tried something for God and failed. They were goats because they failed to try. Everything Jesus says to the goat is, You did not. You did not. You did not. Christians ought to be action-oriented. I believe in an action-based Christianity. I believe that your faith should be seen in your actions. These guys evidently did that too. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in His Spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And He said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Friends, the problem with the world today is they've never seen anything like this. Not that a paralytic's never been healed. Lord, you can turn on the crazy Christian television people with purple hair and shiny suits, and see healings. We rarely ever see somebody risk everything that they have for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what they're amazed at. Yes, they got the result, but the result is not what's amazing. None of the men there did anything for the healing. They did something to get to Jesus. They were willing to risk everything for Him. I have an idea that I just want you to remember. Faith never leaves anything for the journey home. Jesus said, if you set to the plow and you turn back, you are not worthy of Me. These men, when they set out carrying this paralytic, four of them, I bet this guy was heavy. We have six pallbearers in a funeral. Four carrying this paralytic. They raised him up to a roof, dug a hole in a roof, and lowered him at Jesus' feet. I bet they had one thing that had never left their mind. Come hell or high water, we're not carrying this guy back home. That kind of determination where you are willing to throw caution to the wind with a reckless abandonment, I need you, Jesus, produces response. Jesus could see faith within them because of their actions. He could sense in His Spirit the unbelief of others. Faith is displayed. Lack of faith, it's just inaction. Reinhard Bunker is one of my heroes. I know very little about his ministry. 
I know he preaches to large crowds. I know his messages are simple. Simple salvation messages. He'll teach you that God's a power company and you're the light bulb. You know? I mean, we're not talking about incredibly complicated stuff. But there's an attitude that seems to propel this man. And he says, you pray for the will of God and I will run you over from behind because I'm doing the will of God. We spend all of our lives looking for something good to do instead of doing the good that we know to do. There are some things you don't have to pray about. There are some things that you don't need to deliberate or send to a committee. If it's good and it's something that Jesus would do, you should do it. We all know how to wear those bracelets. The problem is we don't know how to act it out. Well, we're going to learn today. Hebrews 11. Turn there with me for a minute. Sometimes you just need to take a problem to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm coming to you with this and I will not carry it back home. Faith that gets results is faith that leaves nothing for the journey back. Y'all in Hebrews? Hebrews in the Thompson Chain Bible, the 11th chapter starts on page 1338. This is a verse you've been taught to quote. It's a verse that is a chapter that's commonly referred to as the Hebrews Faith Hall of Fame. Listen to this. Now faith is being sure. Don't even read the rest of the verse. Now faith is being sure. How many things are you ever really sure about? Most things we think. We don't we're not certain. We're think. We it's probably true. We avoid absolutes at all costs. Because we don't want to be wrong. Well, I didn't say it was certain that. I just said that I thought it was. Faith is being sure. Christians ought to be deliberate in their actions. And you know what? Because you've died to self and taken on the life of Christ, if you are sure that God said thus and so and you go to do it and it doesn't happen, you were dead to self anyway. You can say, I'm sorry, sometimes I miss it. I would rather be sure and be wrong then sit in inaction and uncertainty and never do anything. The men and women in the Bible that are considered faithful, and we'll probably cover this chapter towards the end of this message, all had one thing in common. They did something. They were decisive. They were deliberate. They believed they heard from God and acted on it. And you're going to find out something that might just shake your theology. It might hurt you. It might make you think, you mean the Bible says that? There's a woman in the Bible, not just one, more than one woman in the Bible that in faith sinned and God still credited to her as righteousness. You mean you can do something sure that God told you to do it trying to please Him and it be the wrong thing and Him still credit you with righteousness? Absolutely. Rahab lied. Is lying not wrong? Well, sure. We teach all of our kids don't lie. It's one of the Ten Commandments. We teach people not to bear false witness. Did she lie? There is no way around the fact that she lied. Which way did the spies go? They're hiding right by her feet under some uh, agricultural products. I can't think of Flax. Flax? Yeah, under flax. She said they went that way. Now, how knotted up would some Christians be over that? I've heard the debates. I've heard people criticize Voice of the Martyrs because when they're going through a border crossing and somebody says, what are you carrying into this country? And it's illegal products. It's Bibles. They lie. And they say, medicine for your people. Well, it's true in a sense, but it's certainly not medicine. 
not aspirin in their bags, it's Bibles. Do you mean you could do something that would seem wrong for God and God credit to you as righteousness? Yeah, absolutely. Now, you said, but wait, that's a slippery slope. It requires that you be in God's will and that you heard from God. And the problem with hearing from God is people get into airplanes, believe they've heard from God, and crash them into buildings. So how do you know if you heard from God? His Spirit will bear witness with yours, and in a general sense, the Word confirms it. Doesn't mean everybody else will confirm it. I'll show you example after example in the Bible where a man of God heard from God, and we know it. How do we know it? We're looking in the rearview mirror. History's already passed. We can look back and say, that was God. And all the men of God around him said, no, don't do it. It's bad enough when the world won't support your cause. But when the Christian brothers won't support your cause, what do you do? You have to decide whether, like Joseph, you'll consider the favor of the father greater than the favor of the brothers. See, Joseph was sold out because he wanted his father's praise more than his brother's praise. Christians, we have to be about the father's praise. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It wouldn't be faith if you knew how it would turn out. Being sure and being certain means not that you're certain in the end result, but that you're certain that God's with you. You're certain that He spoke it to you and that you're going to, to the best of your obedience, best of your ability, carry it out. That's what you're sure of. That's what you're certain of. It wouldn't be faith if Moses was you know, had been splitting the Red Sea all of his life. But he had to extend the staff. He had to take a step. And then God came through for him because God told him to do it. Y'all turn with me back to Mark. Whatever you do, fight not to tune me out this morning. This kind of message can make a big difference in your life. The difference between the superstar and the failure in Christianity is what you do, not what you believe. In fact, you'll find some of the most learned theologians, people that seem very knowledgeable about the Bible, fail God because they have no fruit on their tree. I would rather be a janitor that can't read but did something for God than a theologian that believed volumes and did nothing. Y'all in Mark? We're going to be in Mark 5. This is on page 1114 in the Thompson chain. I'm going to get for our projector here, more comforts for you, they see it's a dualistic message this morning, uh, a chart so that you can see where everything is in the Bible. That way we don't give page numbers and you'll learn where they are. Visual aids are important, I think. Y'all in Mark? Chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over, oh, by the way, just a little note, between the last chapter we read, Mark 2 and Mark 5, Mary and, and the sons uh, of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' brothers, all set out to take hold of Jesus. Did you know Mark said that? In fact, Mark 3.21 says that they set out to take hold of Him because they thought He was out of His mind. Is there any question in your mind that Jesus was doing the will of God? In fact, He did the will of God so much that we say He's the perfect representation of God. He is the Lord. He is God over all. The fullness of the deities in Him. And yet people thought He was out of His mind. His own family set out to take control of him because they didn't like what he was doing. If that was the attitude that was in our Lord, it didn't matter whether his family accepted him or not. It didn't matter whether the leaders accepted him or not. 
He was going to do what the Father told him to do, regardless of the consequence, to the point of laying down his life. What attitude are to be in us? In fact, when his family got to the house and they couldn't get in because of the crowds, Jesus said, Who is my mother and my brothers? They're those who do the will of God. Could that have been a little insulting if you were the mother and brothers? Just a little bit. Jesus placed more value. He put more trust in those who were concerned with doing God's will than those who might share the same bloodline. And we ought to do the same. Quit worrying about what people think. I've met more people that stayed in a dull, dry, dead religion that is really an antichrist-type spirit because they were concerned about what their mother or father might think. You can't do it. You can't do it. Now, that doesn't mean that you're ugly to them about the heritage that they gave you or you make people feel guilty for taking you to a church that you found out has an error. What church doesn't? If you thought you found a perfect one, it was sinful the day you walked into it. All right. Chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around Him while He was by the lake. Then one of the rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, He fell at His feet and pleaded earnestly with Him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with Him. A large crowd followed and pressed around Him. And a woman who... A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. A little side note here. This little girl, the little girl, Jairus' daughter, is 12 also. She's 12 years old. And this woman, who we're going to read about right now, she's 12. Uh, or has been sick for 12 years. That means a problem originated 12 years earlier that God was working on a solution for. In this day, Jesus is going to fix two problems that had existed for 12 years. Standing in faith means that you stand in faith, trusting, no matter how long it takes. It's not faith if you don't have to wait for it. You know, we live in an instant society. Order at window one, pick up at window two. Jesus is not like that. He'll even allow a trial to test the genuineness of your faith. Find out if it's real by making you wait for a while for it. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. All of us familiar with the medical field today, men. And he spent all, and had spent all she had. Those of you in billing and collections said amen again. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. You get in the picture? For 12 years, she'd been spending all of her money and getting worse all of the time. Worse financially, worse uh, health-wise, worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His cloak. If you read this in the other Gospels, you'll find it's the edge of His garment. What Matt's holding in His hand over there is the tzitzit. This is an item on Jewish clothing that symbolized a man's authority, the commands given to him by God as a son of God. She grabbed this showing that she was placing herself under His authority. Because she thought... If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, we're going to read some more about this, so keep your finger there. This woman did something, though, that at first glance to the Western reader, you don't get the impact of this. There's a problem with her being subject to bleeding. 
I don't know a delicate way to say it. All women that are in childbearing years have certain cycles in their lives. And Leviticus was teaching a principle. And during a time period where anybody that was a female had an issue of blood of any kind, they were sequestered. Because if you touched them, the Bible said you were ceremonially unclean until morning. There was a reason for this. God was teaching a principle that I don't have time to teach today. Maybe a Wednesday night message I'll teach. But what this woman was doing, having an issue of blood though, going out into a crowd that the disciples are going to say is so thick that they felt like they were going to be crushed, is she is putting herself at risk. Because think about this. If she goes out there and somebody recognizes her and says, you're the one that's been bleeding for 12 years. You're the one that's spending all your money on doctors trying to get better and you just touched all of these people. She made them all unclean. In fact, this is not all that much different than in Bible times, lepers wore bells on them so that when they walked around, people could hear them from a distance because if you bumped into a leper, you were considered unclean because what they had was contagious. If people found out what this woman had done, there would be a penalty. And yet she pressed her way through the crowd, not worried about what the penalty might be for her if failure occurred. She had her eyes on the one man that she knew could do something about her problem. And she pushed in to get to him. And when she touched him, we're going to find out she felt something different in her body immediately. This is the kind of attitude I'm talking about. Forgive the crude term, but to hell with the consequences. I want Jesus. How many times are you sitting there wondering, ooh, I'll get fired if I did that. Oh, they won't like me if I did that. What would my husband think? Oh, my wife will think I'm crazy. Sometimes you have to take the kind of stand for God that says, I don't care. I want Jesus. And then what you'll find out is He usually restores to you more than the devil could take from you. But one has to come before the other. We live in a time where the gospel is preached that God will give, God will give, God will give, and there's no thought of sacrifice. No thought of seeking first the kingdom. It's only the ways that God will multiply you. As if God is a cosmic genie in a bottle that you rub and He does what you want. It doesn't work that way, friends. Alright, back to the woman in the story. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from Him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, His disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? I'm kind of surprised at the way this seems smart aleck. You know? I wonder if it's a translation issue. But, you know, they like, Jesus, come on, man. You see all these people crowding around us? We're about to be crushed, and you're asking me who touched you? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. What is Jesus doing? Looking around to see. What does that tell you? He didn't know. I wonder why the woman didn't, didn't just jump right up and say, oh, praise God, I got healed. Think about the nature of her problem. If she was there and she made that whole crowd unclean, they'd all be angry with her. She didn't want people to know why she was there. She didn't want people to know the problem she had. How many people you think come into a church trying to hide the problem that they have? Don't want anybody to know. Because you'd be worried. If they knew, what would they think of me? Jesus was looking. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. What had caused her inaction? What had caused her not to run to him immediately and say, thank you for healing me? 
fear. Fear of consequence. Fear of what might happen to her. Fear of what people might think. Sometimes people sit in churches for years and they don't get from God what they should get from God because they're fearful. They don't tell anybody about that secret struggle they have. They don't tell anybody. They don't lay it before God's feet. They hide it. They have the I'm alright, you're alright attitude. You know? Everything's okay. You're good, I'm good, we're all good. How many times have you been walking down the street and said, Hey Judah, how are you? And somebody like Judah responds, Life's pretty bad right now. It doesn't happen very often. We are trained to give people the impression that everything's great with us. Part of Christianity is being vulnerable. Being willing to put yourself at risk because you know the one guy that can do something about it. Now, having said that, if I ask you, how are you doing? Be appropriate for the crowd. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you ever, you ever, oh, I, have you ever known anybody that existed anywhere that when you asked them how they were doing, said, oh, I've got a pint of flu in my lower back and a bunion on my toe, and you, know, you quit asking, don't you? <laughs> I'm teasing. Okay, so this woman was paralyzed with fear. She's trembling with fear, and she told him the whole truth. He said, it's something I remind myself of in sales a lot. I mean, it's a burden upon me. I have to give an account for every word. There are lots of times in sales that it's not that you're deceptive, or at least that's what I tell myself, it's that you present the aspects that you want to present and you leave everything else to their imagination. This woman told Jesus the whole truth. Now, there's got to be a balance to that. If I'm selling you a car, I'll, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to present its benefits to you. But this woman came clean with Jesus and told Him the whole truth. In other words, why she was there, what had happened, those kind of things. So often we just want everybody to know everything's all right now. You know? Uh, like we never struggled with sin. Then what happens to the other guy who's fearful, who's sitting in the back thinking, if they knew, if they knew what I'm struggling with, not having any idea that ten other people in the church are too and they just got healed. Can you imagine sitting in this church with AIDS? AIDS, and maybe you got it through uh, uh, drug use. Yeah, not, not, I mean, what do you want to hear when you hear somebody has AIDS? Right away you want to hear that it was through a blood transfusion or, you know, anything but immoral behavior, right? What if you were sitting in this church with AIDS, scared to death that somebody might find out that you had AIDS? And you keep coming up for healing, but it's, it's a personal request because you don't want people to think badly of you. Wouldn't you be comforted to know there were three other people in the church that had already been healed of AIDS? See, when we hold back the truth, when we're scared to put ourselves at risk, everybody suffers. Now, there's a right way to do that, too. I'm, a, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not encouraging you to do something that is wrong or not productive in the service. But this woman told him the whole truth. Verse 38. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know, this woman and the man that was healed, that was a paralytic on the mat, they both had something in common. They both got what they were after. But it started with having the right attitude. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? 
How many times have you gotten a bad report when you set out to do something in faith? Jairus went out in faith to talk to Jesus. There was an interruption. Somebody else had risked everything and gone in faith to talk to Jesus and got healed. And now Jairus gets bad news. His daughter's dead. What would you think? Oh, man, Jesus was good to them, but me, my daughter's dead. You know, if this woman hadn't interrupted, maybe Jesus had gotten there sooner, right? God seems to come through for everybody but me. Come on, don't tell me that I'm the only one in here that's ever thought that. Got the what about me pity party. Well, the P-Rows are blessed. They got a new job. They got nice this, that, but me. Like God doesn't care about you. When you hear those thoughts, you need to do what Jesus did with them. Verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. That is such simple advice. Jesus ignored what the people told Him. And He said, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow Him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. There's a whole other message here, but friends, when you are in a really tough place in life, quit running to anybody who will listen and start running to the people that are full of faith. Because when you're in a tough place in life, it's important that you surround yourself by the right people. I don't mean this harshly, but that is usually not the relatives you talk to on the phone. Is that enough said there? Okay. That's usually not who is most inclined to listen. You'll find out people like to revel in problems. Christians deal in solutions. They don't deal in problems. In fact, they deal in the solution. And if there's nobody you can call on the phone that's full of faith, take it straight to the throne. Bypass everybody else. You have that right as a Christian. You don't have to go to the Vatican. You don't have to go to some great man of God. You can go straight to God. He did not let anyone follow Him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with the people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at Him. When you set out in faith, the response of most people is laughing. And why? Because it always looks foolish. It looks irresponsible. You tell somebody that you're moving to another state to start a church and you don't know anybody there. Wouldn't it make better sense to start a church where you know everybody? You tell people you're going to start a church in a garage and they'll laugh at you. You know when you tell them you go to church in a garage. They do. They laugh at you. Wouldn't it make more sense to rent a building? Wouldn't it make more sense to have something nice like the other churches around you? And that's all good and fine unless that's not what God told you to do. People laughed at Jesus. After He pulled them all out or put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Whether we're talking about the man who was lowered in through the roof, or whether we're talking about the woman with the issue of blood or the little girl's father that had to go and fight through bad reports and laughter of people, they all had one thing in common. They were willing to risk it all just to get to Jesus because they believed He had a solution for them. That kind of attitude brings the blessing of God. 
the things that stopped them. Why did the woman not tell Jesus immediately? It says she was trembling with fear, right? Quaking with fear. Turn with me to 1 John 4. Easiest way to find 1 John is to turn to the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible, and start to work your way left. 1 John, the fourth chapter in the Thompson Chain, is on page 1,358. Your first option when confronted with fear is found in the fourth chapter, verse 17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Remember this phrase. When you think that God's called you to do something and the what-ifs come into your mind that are consequences and fear begins to grow in your heart, your perfect love for Jesus, your perfect love for Him that causes obedience in you should drive out that fear. That's option number one. That when in fear, perfect love should drive it out. Your second option is found in Romans. You'll continue to move to the left. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts. Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans. Romans that we're going to be in is Romans 8. On page 1255. Option one is when fear begins to dwell in your heart regarding putting yourself at risk to accomplish something for God, your perfect love for Him should drive it from you. If that doesn't work, here's option number two. Option number two is found in verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear but you receive the Spirit of Sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If your perfect love for Jesus is not enough to dissuade the fear, your love for Him wanting to please Him, wanting to be obedient, is not enough to push away the fear, then your second option is knowing that you're His child and under His protection, under His care, belonging to Him as an adopted baby ought to dissuade the fear. If option one and two don't work, there is a third. By the way, on this adoption note, anybody in here ever been around somebody that adopted a child? Raise your hand if you have. Well, y'all should meet some sometime. If somebody had to pray for a long time for a child and then had one, or if somebody couldn't have children and then went and adopted one, you can almost spot them in a crowd because they don't let a leaf blow through the wind and hit that baby, you know? I had the misfortune one time of knocking out a child's teeth by accident. I was older than him, and we were playing football, actually. And I then was confronted with his mother. And she had been through all the medical procedures and all of those things for years to have a baby. And I found out she took her child's baby teeth a whole lot more seriously than most mothers that I had met. We are adopted children of God. He takes you very seriously. That ought to dissuade fear. But if option one, perfect love driving out fear doesn't work, and if option two, knowing that you're God's child and His hand is on you in the same way that any father's hand is on their child, then there is a third option. Turn with me to Luke. You'll hang a left from where you're at. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke's the third book in the New Testament. Going to be in Luke 12. Starting in uh, the fourth verse on page 1155 in the Thompson chain. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Option one, when you feel compelled to do something for God and all the what-ifs come up. Well, what if I pray for Him and He doesn't get out of the wheelchair and everybody laughs and thinks that we're stupid and that God doesn't work. When that thought comes to you, the first thing is, I want to be obedient to Him because I love Him. I love Jesus with all of my heart. And so regardless, I'm going to do it. But if that just doesn't muster up enough courage in you, you need to think, I need to do this because I'm God's child. He'll protect me from whatever happens. It's important that I be obedient because I'm His child. But if that doesn't work, then the Luke 12.4 principle ought to. You should fear God more than you fear the consequences because the Bible says He's not a respecter of persons. So what on earth does that mean? That means only the obedient are blessed and anyone who is disobedient, there is a price that you pay for that. What did he say? You should fear God because He has the power to... Oh boy, we don't like that kind of preaching. To be successful in the kingdom. You remember I read you earlier that faith often borders on irresponsibility? That uh, faith holds nothing back, throws caution to the wind, and is not concerned with the possibility of failure? To do that, you have to kind of take on an attitude that is not typically thought of as Christian. You've heard that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, right? A rebel. That's not something that you would usually think of as a good thing, right? Rebels, that's bad. Somebody who won't conform to the status quo, that's bad. Unless it's God who's motivating you to do it. You know, the difference between a rebel and a freedom fighter or a rebel and a revolutionary is in perspective. See, we find out that the men of God in the Bible had a very nonconformist attitude. Did Jesus receive support from the religious structure in Israel? Did that make Him wrong? Not at all. Could you call that rebellious? Might they have called Him rebellious? Yeah, they accused Him of leading all the crowds astray. Paul was... Paul, what you would consider a model Roman citizen? How about a model Jewish citizen? No, they said he stirred up trouble all over the world and he turned the world on its edge. We take it as a compliment. But they considered him a rebel, didn't they? You have to be willing if you're going to be in this kingdom to go against the grain. You have got to be willing to stand up against this desire for conformity. Turn with me to Exodus 20. You'll find out there's a kind of altar that God honors. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament. And in Exodus 20, starting in verse 25, which is on page 84 in the Thompson chain, if you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dress stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. Hey, my God, what is that about? You know, the whole Old Testament 
in some people's mind, it's nothing more than do this and do that and you're punished for this. And if it's got six legs and wings, you need it. If it doesn't have six legs and wings, you can't eat it. Fish and, uh, fins and scales. and You know, you get bogged down in all of this and don't consider what He's trying to teach you through these natural principles. When God had them build an altar, how would you build something today? When you go out and you look at the bricks on your house, there's some bricks on this house. You can look at them when you get out there. Those bricks are all shaped a certain way. They were all tempered a certain way. They all look just like another. You remember when we started this message, I told you that there's this pressure upon us to be like everybody else. In fact, even in the nature realm, animals pick out the one that is different, calling it weak. And this whole idea of survival of the fittest is born out of that frustration in creation. If you're different, you're weak. We find out that God wants you that way. God did not call Steve to be like Brad. He did not call David to be like Trevor or Matthew to be like Judah or Bobby to be like Eric. He did not call us that way. If you are going to be an altar that God can receive the sacrifice of obedience in your life, one thing's required. You not have the tooling of any man. You're not man's work. You're not man's product. You were uniquely shaped by God in the environment He put you in. But there's a problem with that. How do you stack stones on one another that have not been shaped? How do you hold together an altar that is made of stones with no two alike? This uniqueness would seem to be a structural flaw, would it not? I mean, if you're going to go rebuild the World Trade Center, you're not going to do it with no two bricks being the same, are you? No. We would think, man, that's chaos. That's crazy. There's no strength in that. You'd have to have an awful strong mortar. You'd have to have an awful strong adhesive. In the Christian life, you are the oddly shaped stone and God called you to be unique. He called you to be different. He wants you to be different than the people around you. He wants you to have that unique little flair that makes you you because He's going to use it. And what binds you together with the unique stone sitting on your left is Jesus. Turn with me to Colossians 1.17. Or if you like, you can just listen to me read it if you trust me not to lie to you about it. Colossians is... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians is found on page 1308. Listen to this. It's in chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in Him He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. That's not at all what I wanted to read, but that is good. <laughs> Sorry about that. You have to forgive me. You are going to have to trust me now. In the book of Colossians, 
it says that Jesus is the head of the body and that we are the supporting ligaments and sinews and that He holds everything together. The strength of a wall that is made from something uniformly built is in the stones. The strength of the kind of altar that God builds is in the adhesive. And the adhesive is Jesus. Turn with me to Ephesians 2.20. That was 2.17, 2.9. That previous verse, if you're taking notes, was 2.9. But we're going to restate it a little differently in Ephesians. Uh, From Colossians, go to the left. Ephesians 2.20 is on page 1299. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. When God chose to build His dwelling, He chose to take people as uniquely different as Matthew Piro and Brad Hull. He chose to take people as uniquely different as Sarah and Mandy. God did that because His diversity is displayed in His people. God's not the God of the Indo-Europeans. He's not the God of the Caucasians only. He's not the God of the Africans only. Everybody on the world, the diversity that is there is representative of what God wants to rule through. This was displayed in so many ways. Joseph had a coat of many colors. The tabernacle that Moses built was covered with a, uh, for lack of a better word, a tarpaulin made up of skins of many different kinds of animals. God chose you because you are unique. It's your individuality that God likes about you because He can do something different through Diana than He can do through Eric. And God uses that. He has many tools in His tool belt. God chose it that way. This idea that we need to be uniform, that any irregularity is wrong, it starts really young with us. This has led to a kind of franchising of Christianity, if you will. You know what franchising is? Well, McDonald's in this area works really well. And we find out that it takes this many employees, that the building should be shaped like this that the people who run it should run it in this fashion, that the food should all be absolutely identical. Churches have fallen into this franchising idea. Well, so-and-so did it, and that is what is successful, so we need to do it that way. This goes directly against some of the things that God Himself has told us. He desires that we be unique. Turn with me to Genesis 9. We've got about ten more minutes. And I'm hoping that This would be painfully clear to you. Maybe not so painfully. Abundantly clear. That's a better word? In Genesis 9, Gabriel's heard me preach all this before. Listen to what God tells mankind right after the flood. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill 
the whole earth. What did He tell them to do? Be fruitful, increase in number, and go out and fill the whole planet. Noah's sons contain the genetic code for everybody that is on the planet today. Do you realize that? Everybody that is on the planet today came from Ham, Shem, Japheth, and their wives. There's no other possibilities. Those must have been some diverse guys, huh? God said, I want you to go out and fill the whole earth with your offspring. Go out from this place. Don't cluster together. Don't hang out in like groupings. Go out and fill the whole thing. Turn with me to Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. God told them in Genesis 9, I want you to go fill the whole earth. God had intended for the seed of Noah to be spread out in all of its diversity all over the planet because God values individuality. He didn't create you on an assembly line. He did not make you to be like someone else. Have you ever noticed when you watch churches, if, one, if, if the pastor preaches from a certain kind of Bible, everybody else does too. If the pastor wears certain kind of suits, before long, usually the guys in the church start wearing those kind of suits. In fact, I was even a part of some of this. One of us had a, a, a leather satchel. And before long, you could look around and in our Bible study, everybody had a leather satchel. Somebody introduced us to Greek food and before long, if you didn't like Greek food, something was wrong with you. We have this desire to group together into like groupings. We find security in knowing that I'm like David and David's like me. God called us to be different. He wants an uncut stone. Not one that can't be polished by Him, but He does not want us to look just like each other. That's why Mandy's beautiful and I'm ugly. That's how that works. God caused this to be different so that we could be used for different purposes. In this case, these men all find one place that they can settle. Now, the whole world having a common speech, doesn't that sound like a good thing? Yeah, we could teach about God and everybody will understand. The whole world being in one place, wouldn't that be good? Oh yeah, we can talk to them all at one time. Some of the things that we do in the franchising of Christianity are just like this. Could it be good to put 20,000 Christians under one roof? Sure, it could be good. You could cram all the salt into one shaker if that's what you really want to do. And the salt will benefit. Lots of people look just like you, act just like you. But what if God wants to spread them out over the whole earth so that what they have will spread over the whole earth? Could that at least be a possibility? Let's see what he did with this group. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. How did God say build an altar? God said, If you're going to build an altar, I want you to do it with uncut, undressed stones. They said, Oh, we're going to make some bricks. And in, instead of stone, and tar for mortar. Things that are made of man come from the works of man. They're always uniform because man's scared to death to look any different than anybody else. These bricks were all uniform. The thing that you would use for mortar on an altar that was from God with uncut stones would be mortar. It's made of rock. It's made of lime. It's made of the same substance as the stones. Jesus was made of your substance. The things that hold worldly things together are things of the earth. Tar. Nasty, disgusting, but it sure is of the earth. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What did God tell them to do? 
go out and cover the whole earth. What did they say? We're going to make ourselves a tower. We're going to reach in the heavens and we're not going over the whole earth. 